Following is a talk that was given during our men's breakfast by ruling elder John Hargett. It was a talk on the sovereignty of God in light of so many struggles that John has gone through in his life, and I'm always so encouraged by this dear brother. The reason I'm adding this preface in is because the video started after I had read uh, from the book of Job, and John had found it meaningful, and I really wanted this to set the stage for the talk and so since it didn't catch it on the video during that morning, I'm going to read it now and then we'll go into the talk. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Father, we thank you for this, mom uh, this morning, and we thank you for this moment where you bring us men together to fellowship, to eat, to enjoy each other's company, that you bring our brother John to us a year after uh, this stroke, Lord, that has hit him, that's changed his life. I thank you for his willingness to speak to us, to give us some of his, uh, some of his insights, to talk of his faith, to talk of his struggles even. Uh, would we be encouraged and uplifted, and would he be encouraged and uplifted? We'll give you all the glory. In Christ's name, amen. And so I'm sure John will tell us the story, but... Uh, one year ago, we could never imagine, he could never imagine where he'd be today. And yet, uh, just 10 months ago, I'd never imagined that we'd get to ask him to speak with us and uh, for his perspective on what's happened to him. This is a godly brother. He's one of our ruling elders uh, here at Meadowview for a very, very long time. A great encouragement to me. And just as I've watched him and, and met with him and spoken with him, about how he's processing this, uh, I, I was blessed. And so I asked John to speak on the sovereignty of God, and um, that's a tall task. And usually I wouldn't ask somebody to speak on that when they've gone through tragedy as recent as this. But uh, again, as I said, I, as I've talked to him about this, I have just was so encouraged. I said, would you speak to the men about this? And so that's uh, what we'll be about to hear. And then I'll even ask John some questions when he's done, and, and we can even take questions from, from you guys. And so let me help him get set up, and then we'll go. All right, so let's make sure we can hear you. Sweet. Okay, everybody here? Okay, good, good. Um, <clears throat> I sent Ozzy a note about a week or so ago telling him how much difficulty I was having getting notes down for this because number one, I started writing and I was writing it all out like I was going to say it. Well, that got into multiple pages and my handwriting got progressively worse and it was just too many pages and I went, I got to condense this down. So then I changed my focus and I said, I'll go back, I'll just make an outline form. So I started out with an outline. Then the problem was, I get deeper in the outline. I'd remember something I'd forgotten earlier, so I'd go back up and insert in the outline what I'd forgotten. Well, after I kept doing that, the outline didn't look any better than the first pages did. So it still looks a whole lot like that. So I'm hoping I can read my notes somewhat. But um, 
this has been an interesting process, just going back and thinking through uh, the sovereignty of God in my life. So one of the things many of you probably already know, um, some of you may not, that um, when I was just a young man, uh, 14 years old, um, a friend of mine, Ross Coppage, I came home from school that day and my dad was having me pack up a a box of groceries from the store to take to the coppages house, which is something he normally did when there was a death in the family. And I asked him what was going on. He said, well, Ross's dad died today. Ross was my age, and his dad owned an asphalt company, and a truck had exploded, and he had died on the spot. And uh, I remember going to bed that night thinking how terrible it would be at 14 to lose your dad. Little did I know that two weeks later, I'd be in my freshman English class, and the vice principal and Mrs. Blue would be standing at the door wanting to ask me out in the hallway to talk to me just a minute. And they'd tell me that my dad had had a massive heart attack and was gone. And so at 14, there I was. Um, I'm going to tell you here, I didn't process that very well. I did what most crazy young 14-year-old boys do. I, I didn't respond well to that. Fortunately for me, there were adult men in my church that stepped into the gap and spoken to my life. Men like Gene Thigpen and Larry Davenport, Herbert Waller, uh, Claude Dixon, and my pastor, Gene Outland, who stepped in my life and encouraged me. And even growing up in a Free Will Baptist church where the issue of whether or not you're saved is a questionable thing every day, Earl Hansen stepped in, who was you know, almost a lifelong deacon in the Free Will Baptist church, sat me down one day and told me, John, you can know that you are saved. Stop worrying about it. Trust in God. And uh, things progressed. I rebelled. I, really, I, I had a pretty pampered life as a young uh, adolescent. Uh, my mom was a big person in how you look, presentation. So I had a car. I had a charge account at the gas station. If I wanted a new shirt from Belks, I could just go down and pick it out and put it on mom's charge account. So those of you who are old enough remember that I wore uh, Farrah slacks and wingtip core fam shoes and um, zero shirts with cuff links to school and uh, kind of had my own way. Life was good, but that wasn't good enough for me. I had an argument with my mom at 16, got angry, and ran away from home. Pretty stupid, huh? Well, had to find some place to live, so a friend of mine and his mom offered, she owned a little marina there in Newburn, Jack Smith's Creek. And uh, so I went from having my own car and my nice clothes and charge accounts and cash to uh, raising fishing worms to pay the bills. Those of you who've never raised fishing worms, that's a whole nother story to itself, but um, it's not pretty work. Tarring roofs and um, priming tobacco, things like that that make ends meet that summer. And by the end of the summer, one of the things about the landing there was they were trying to backfill the land, and so people could just come dump stuff, help us backfill. And one of the people that would dump there was the Salvation Army. So clothes that had been donated to them that they deemed as not usable, they would throw them out at that landfill. And, uh, and I was out back there shoveling gravel, helping to backfill the area behind the marina. And by the end of that summer, I'd worn through all my Farrah slacks and my, my Ciro shirts, and I was picking clothes off the uh, Salvation Army's junk pile for my clothes. End of that summer, my Aunt Talitha invited me to a youth revival at my home church. And only went because my Aunt Talitha was a really great cook and she offered to feed me supper first. But um, I went there and a young man named Jonathan Thigpen, whose dad was the, uh, the uh, president of the Free Will Baptist Bible College in Nashville, Tennessee. Jonathan was speaking and Vernon Whaley, who was music director. Um, they, they touched my life with their, with their speaking and their testimonies. And... Um, I accepted Christ there that night and uh, knew that I had been wrong, all the things I'd done that summer. 
So I went to my mother, who I had just said some of the awfulest things about to counselors all summer long. I went to her and apologized. And uh, I asked her, could I come home? And my little red-headed mama looked back at me and said, son, you could always come home. And I came home that night. And the next day, she was prepping to get ready for my 17th birthday. And uh, she came home. And she had reinstated the insurance on the car for me to be able to drive it. And she bought me a new watch and a new burst. And she bought me a new stone ring. And she never said a word about that summer ever again. She forgave me, and it was done. But the girl that I had been dating for a year who had noticed the change in my demeanor from me driving a new car with plenty of money in my pocket, I'd come pick her up in the boat landings pickup truck. It had a big noose boat landing sign on the door and a bashed-in fender. And... Um, she just couldn't understand this change in my life. And she just told me, she said, I, I just don't think that's me. I, I don't think I can do this. So we broke up after a year. And oddly enough, though, at that same church was a young lady named Jane Moore that I started to date, who became my first wife. Um, Jane and I had been high school sweethearts. We became high school sweethearts. and and. We were married a year after we graduated from high school. So at the young age of 18, I was a married man in the Air Force. Life was moving on. Um, things progressed. Uh, one of the things about dating Jane was is that we only could have one date a week. So her mom and dad offered that if I wanted to go to the Bible study they went to on Thursday nights, it was okay for me to pick up Jane early and go out to supper then go to the Bible study, then I could take her out for an ice cream and bring her back. And that didn't count as our one date. So naturally, I'm going to go to the Bible study. Well, the Bible study was being taught by a guy named, the last name was, first name was Tucker Littleton. And uh, Tucker Littleton was a Reformed Baptist pastor from a little tiny church in Swansboro. And as soon as I sat down to the first Bible study, I realized this guy was trying to lead my future family astray. So I went digging back home and found my dad's Schofield reference Bible. And I was going to save my future family from this heresy. And uh, the guy that my dad had bought our property from was a guy named Preacher Poston, who is a retired Southern Baptist pastor. So I went and asked him some questions. And he said, listen, he said, I've got still have all my books from seminary. If you want to borrow any of them, you can. So I did. And I started doing research. I'd take notes furiously at Tucker's Bible studies and then spend all week trying to find references to prove him wrong. Now, you got to realize that when Poston went to seminary, it was in right after 1900. And the Southern Baptist Church was very Reformed in its early days. Uh, so I'm reading these Reformed uh, commentaries, helping me try to build my case against Reformed theology. Um, and then I was singing with a quartet at the time, which had always been my life's dream to sing with a quartet. And uh, it was a family-style quartet, but there were three men and uh, a lady that sang together. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, we would sing, and then each night one of the men would preach. Well, sure enough, at 17, I was, I was allowed to preach for these little minis, revival get-togethers. And uh, one day the men in the quartet said, we need to talk. I said, what about? I said, well, we've noticed in your teaching that some of this stuff you've been hearing on Thursday nights is starting to leak in, and, and it's just confusing people. And so if you're going to insist on doing that, you can't preach anymore. So as they were arguing with me, and I'm arguing back, we're, well, not arguing, just discussing theology. Somewhere in the midst of that whole conversation in the back of that car that day, I realized not only did I, I believe what I was saying, and that's when Reformed theology came into my life, and it became important. 
But that also posed a problem because I was very active in the youth group in my church. We had a kid group of about 20 kids and, and my mom had pictured me as being her Freeville Baptist preacher. And so she was ready to send me to the college, Bible college to, to become a Freeville Baptist preacher. And uh, I was having a hard time with that because number one, I wasn't a student very well. I, did, I didn't enjoy studying. And I certainly didn't believe what she was wanting me to go learn how to do for the rest of my life. And so at 17, I brought home paperwork to join the Air Force. And she just looked at me with, I mean, like she couldn't believe it and signed the papers and let me join. So at 17, I joined the Air Force, left home and thought, okay, I'll never see my family again. I go to basic training, go to tech school, and, and lo and behold, I get my base of choice, and I end up at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, which is next door to my hometown of Newburn. So I'm right back home again. And a year later, Jane and I were married. And um, I'll tell this quick story here. When early in the days of the military, you had to, you had to get premarital counseling before you could marry. And uh, so I brought Jane in to, to talk with Chaplain Williams. And... Um, not long after that, I'm walking through the annex of the chapel and the custodian, George, an elderly black man there, said, John, have you got a minute? I need to talk to you. I said, sure, George, I got a minute. So I sat down with George, and George said, John, I saw that pretty little thing you brought in here the other day. I said, yes, George. I said, I had to bring him in for pre-marriage counseling. It's required. He said, I got a question for you. I said, what's that, George? He said, do you like her? I said, George, that's a foolish question. I love her, George. No, no, you didn't hear me. Do you like her? I said, George, you didn't hear me. I love her. George said, let me help you, son. He said, all the things you love about her today are going to fade. It's important that you like each other because things aren't going to be like they are today. Well, we married, had kids, and... Um, Came back home to Newburn after I'd spent my time in the Air Force. And for her 30th birthday, I sold my bass boat and bought her a camper trailer so that we could camp because she loved to camp. I hated camping. She loved camping. Um, and for Labor Day of that year, we were going to go to Bush Gardens for the weekend. So I worked all week getting the new hitch put on the car and overload springs and a, and a sway bar and all the things. I was make that camper pull so well. We pulled out of Newburn on a Friday afternoon, driving to Williamsburg. And 35 miles later, we were sideswiped by a tractor trailer, which put my car into a spin. And we spun out into a field, totally out of control. The trailer rolled over on the back of the car. And uh, we came to a stop, and everybody was fine. Nobody was hurt. The kids were in the back. And uh, everything was fine. But at that exact moment that everything was fine, the tractor trailer had rolled up on an embankment going to a crossing for the river, Tar River in Washington. And the trailer flipped over and landed on top of our car. It was full of rolls of paper from Weyerhaeuser. And uh, it crushed our car. And Jane was killed instantly. I was pinned in the seat. The hood of the car had me pinned to the seat. It had been smashed down that far. And I could look to my right and see Jane's face. And I called to her and she didn't respond. And so I reached over and took her hand and felt for a pulse. And there wasn't a pulse. And I had to turn around to my two children in the back who were seven and nine and uh, ask them to be quiet. We had things we had to take care of. But their mama was gone. And uh, this is when this, a miracle happened to me. The first, one of the very first responders to that car, you see my first wife was a licensed practical nurse, and my kids had grown up seeing their mom in a nurse's uniform, the white hose and the white shoes and the white hat, the whole business back in those days. The first person to get up and respond to that accident was a nurse traveling from Scotland Neck down to Wilmington to spend the weekend with her mother. And she offered to take my kids to the hospital until the family could show up. So here was a familiar figure to my children. 
and they were willing to go with her, and she stayed with them until my parents came up from Newburn. And uh, I remember going into the hospital, and I remember laying there because I knew Jane was gone at this point, and I remember them checking me out and the doctor doing an examination of my abdomen and saying, son, you're bleeding internally. I don't know what's going on or how bad it is, but all I can tell you is we'll do the very best we can to save your life. And then I felt a little warm feeling in my arm, and I went to sleep, not knowing if I'd wake up. The next morning, I wake up in my room, and there's two gentlemen standing there from my work. One's from High Point, North Carolina, one's from Newburn. The High Point, North Carolina guy had gotten up that morning and flown to Newburn, and they'd driven up to Washington, and they were standing beside my bedside. And the company I'd been working for for about three years at that point, they said, oh, listen, we know this is the shock, going from two incomes down to one, and we don't know what, what you had in plans for if something like this ever happened, but I spoke to the president yesterday afternoon, and he told me to come down here today and to tell you that whatever happens, we've got your back. Don't worry about it. And they did. I could tell you another half an hour what all they did for me during those early years, but I never lost a paycheck, even though I didn't come back to work for two months. I never missed a paycheck. Um, but just prior to all this, one of the things about Tucker, the little church he had in Swansboro, there were ladies there that had a ministry, and there was a gentleman named Charles Alexander who lived in England who wrote pamphlets on Reformed theology, got them published, and would mail them to this little church in Swansboro. And they had a cardex file of about 300 men around the world. And every month they would mail those little pamphlets out to all the men on that cardex file. I didn't think anything of it. It was something to keep the ladies busy, whatever. And now Charles Alexander wrote some heavy-duty literature. Nice guy, typical Englishman, black bowler, long black raincoat, umbrella, just stereotypical Englishman that I've had the privilege to meet uh, when he was in his late 80s. Linda, at the time of my wife's death, was um, attending the little church that we were members of in Newburn. And that was an interesting process. She grew up in Cincinnati and had several factory jobs in the area and just decided that was not what she wanted to do. So one day out of the clear blue, she goes to the recruiter's office and wants to join the Navy, I think, but they were out to lunch. And while she's waiting, these two guys stepped out of their office in really snappy uniforms and, and said, young, man, young lady, have you ever considered the U.S. Marine Corps? Well, then suddenly, I don't know what, thought transpired at that point, but she decided that's what she wanted to do. So she joined the Marine Corps. Shortly thereafter, she was at Paris Island, from Paris Island to Meridian, Mississippi, to go to tech school. And from there, she graduated first in her class and was given the privilege to be able to choose what base that her skill site had need of. So she chose to be stationed at Cherry Point Marine Corps Air Station, which is in a little town called Havelock which is 15 miles from my hometown and from that little Southern Baptist church. And while she was home on leave, her and her dad was looking at the, you know, the atlas, the atlas. her dad was a truck driver. And um, he said, well, let's just look, I see how close you are. I get a pamphlet from a little church in a little town called Newburn, North Carolina, from a guy named Charles Alexander. And you might want to check them out and see, maybe see if you want to attend church there. Who'd have thought that? So this lady from Cincinnati who had, uh, is suddenly in my Sunday school class at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Newburn. And that summer before Jane's death, I had been asked to teach through the Psalms for my Sunday school class. And uh, I'm doing my prep work and teaching every week. And the ladies in the class talked to my pastor and said, you need to spend some time with John. It seems John ends up at the same point at the end of every psalm. He just, I'm not sure if he's doing right preparation or something. You might want to talk with him. 
So Leroy said, John, you need to come sit with me and just show me what your notes are each week. We'll talk through them before each Sunday. So I did. And um, after we met for a couple of weeks, he said, well, I'm still not sure how you got here, but I see you're doing your, abs- your adequate preparation for teach. The problem was, was that the ladies were complaining, complaining and said it's just kind of unusual because every week John ends up at the point of saying God's grace is sufficient. And what the purpose was that whole summer I was preaching to myself so that at the end of that summer when I needed that grace to overwhelm me and to prove to be for sufficient for me, it was there because in the car, in the midst of tragedy, when I reached over and there was no pulse, there wasn't any fear. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe I do. But I knew it would be okay. And God brought this other young lady into my life to become my wife and the mother of my children. And she's been a blessing. I remember George's statement to me because now, wow, 39 years later, I look back and as I prepared for this and kept making notes and revising my notes, it was obvious more and more and more how many times God has stepped into my life just exactly when I needed him. Sometimes preventing me from doing some things I really wanted to do and I was angry about it. But looking back, I've been able to see, wow, that would have been a horrible detour if I had been able to do that. And he prevented me from doing something that would have caused my ruin. But as many of you know who've been here a while now, you know that a little over five years ago, six years ago, I went in for a routine checkup, and the doctor comes out of the examining room and said, I'm sorry to have to tell you, sir, but you have cancer. At that moment, every plan, every ambition, anything you'd plan to do just gets washed away because the reality is I'm not going to live for it. It's not going to happen. And I remember Jane later on, Linda would say to me, she said, she said, I was so disappointed because at that moment I needed a hug and you wouldn't give me one. And I said, well, you need to understand. I said I was pretty much in shock at that moment. I didn't know what to do. But even then, when the surgeon met with us and told us the seriousness of the situation, I wasn't worried, wasn't fearful, because I had assurance that his grace was indeed sufficient for me. And he would prepare for me. He would meet the needs of my family. And so I wasn't worried. I'm not saying... Surgery and chemotherapy is easy, guys. It's ugly. Larry Davenport, uh, Larry McDaniel, I'm sorry. Larry McDaniel, later on when he was doing a survey for me at my work, he said, I have to be honest with you, John. He said, a couple of Sundays ago when Paul and I were on our way home from church, she looked at me and she said, Larry, is John going to make it? And he said, I said, I don't know. Because at that time I'd, gone from 205 pounds down to about 150 pounds. And I probably looked like dried up chicken by then because I was pretty well toast from the chemotherapy. But you know, it's amazing. The lady that was my oncologist here in Lexington, she was a believer. In fact, she attends a Reformed church in Winston-Salem. And uh, the last session I had with her, she said, how are you doing? And I said, well, Doc, I said, I I hate to tell you this. I said, when I first started this out, I'd have the treatment. I'd go home. I'd feel bad for a day or so. And then I'd be okay by the time I came back here. And then we started all over again. I said, but now I feel as bad today as I did when I went home from last week's treatment. And she said, John, you need to understand something with chemotherapy. I've been trying to kill you a little bit every time you came, and I'm almost there. Uh, because to kill the cancer, you have to, it's kind of indiscriminate. It kills a little bit of everything in you. But you know, even then, 
during those difficult times. There wasn't fear. I was assured because of the history that I had, the remembrance, the things I could look back on and know the times he stepped into my life and he provided for me. And uh, this led me to remember something I talked to one of the elders about years ago. I think it was Randy. I said, you know, that's why in scriptures it talked about the older men talking to the younger men because I've always tried to picture what it was like back in those days when the young shepherd boys would be sitting around the fireplace tending the sheep and the older shepherds would be there with them and one of the young boys would look at one of the elder men and say, tell us what it was like. And one of those men would talk about what it was like standing on the banks of the Red Sea and seeing the water part and walking through on dry land or seeing manna come from heaven or quail fall from the sky until you were wading in them, seeing water come from a rock, how that would have encouraged those young men because those old men related how God had been sufficient, had been sovereign in the life of Israel when they were in the desert culminating with the story of how they walked around the city of Jericho. And then the trumpet sounded, and they called for the men to shout, and they shouted, and the walls fell down, just one upon the other. And they took the city. How that would inspire those young men around that campsite. And then as George read from Job, that's been one of the passages that I have read through several times over my life. I was always amazed how you know, when all that calamity in Job's life, he went to his friends. And if you know the story well, his friends didn't help him a whole lot. They kind of heaped coals on his head every time he turned around. Until in chapter 38, God answers Job out of the whirlwind. So, number one, I'd like to encourage you first to do what I've done this last two months in getting ready for this talk. Look back over your life. Dissect it very carefully. Look at the ways. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure every one of you will discover places where God has sovereignly stepped into your life and redirected your path, assured you when there was no assurance from any of your friends and mentors, but assure you that he was in control and he had you firmly in the palm of his hand. So I would ask you to go back and do that and remind yourself of the, how God was sufficient, more than sufficient. He provided everything you needed in the midst of the whirlwind of your life when you didn't know what the next day held, when you lost your job, when you lost a loved one, when you lost a house, when you lost a promotion when you lost a marriage. I'm telling you, looking back now on my 70 years, God has always been sufficient. He has always held me firm. Even when I didn't feel it, I knew it because he had given me proof over and over and over again in my life. So no matter where you are today, brothers, no matter what struggle you have, <clears throat> I could tell you that when they called George a year ago about my circumstances, many of you know this story. Lynn and I had been planning to retire, and, and from my days of working for Hatteras Yachts in Newburn, we had decided we were going to retire on a boat. So we had been traveling all over the East Coast looking for boats, and that weekend prior, we had just come back from a trip to Annapolis, Maryland, where we'd found the perfect boat, and we'd put in a bid on it, and it had been accepted. And they had sent us the contract to sign to buy the boat. We put our house up for sale, and that, the day of the stroke is when they put the for sale sign in the front yard. And then in a moment of me not being able to do stupid things, like I couldn't get my belt on. I kept dropping my phone. I couldn't get my shirt buttoned right. I walked down the hall in frustration, and Linda said, what's wrong, babe? 
I said, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I just can't seem to pull it together this morning. And she, uh, she looked at me, and I was kind of mumbling my words. And she said, come take, sit down, I'll take your blood pressure. So she did, and of course, the blood pressure cuff, it, it squeezed your arm pretty good. And, uh, and she said, can you feel that? No. So then she looked up, and she realized my mouth was drooping a little bit. So she called Andrea, said she was taking me to the hospital. And miraculously, at that moment, I was still able to somewhat walk. And she was able to get me up out of the chair, and we walked out and got into, went down the steps in the garage and got into the truck. And she drove me to the hospital. And in a moment, all the plans of boats and stuff was gone. Now, I'm not saying that someday in the future I won't regain the ability to walk and use my left arm to where that can become a reality again. But I don't know. I'm not worried about it. Because even now, I know God is sovereign. I know he has me in his hands. And uh, if the boat never comes and we spend the rest of our lives over on Swicegood Road, that'll be okay. Because I know he's in the midst of it. So I would encourage you brothers to reflect on your life. Remember those times. And then when you have the opportunity to your sons and to the younger men, tell them the story of your Jericho, of your Red Sea, of your Jordan. And remind them and remind yourself of how God has been awesome all throughout your life even when you weren't looking for him. He steps in and proves to you that he is indeed God. I thought about reading those first few verses. Maybe George can do it from chapter 38, where God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And he questions Job and reminds Job and questioning him, where were you when I laid the foundation? Where were you when I told the seas you can go this far and no further? And that the one who named the stars knows you by name. Rejoice in that. Rest in that. And the storms of your life will have a different perspective. Thank you. just quoted it so perfectly. <laughs> Praise God. All right, let me read that. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I love that. <laughs> Be a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like the clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recess of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. 
Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is dis distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has a cleft channel for the torrents of the rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or, has, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Or who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt prey, the prey of the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in the dens or lie in wait their thicket? Who provides for the ravens its prey when its young one cries to God for help and wander about for lack of food. And it goes on like that for multiple chapters. <laughs> the Lord just saying, you don't know, but I know. Uh, I, I want to take questions if it's okay, but, but I have a question. When, so for so long you worked toward retirement, the boat, some plans. We thought we were going to lose you here from the church. When, when, this, when this happened, was there any... I, I can imagine for me, I would say, really, God? Really? Was there any anger? Was there any, like, if you're willing, and, and you don't have to, but what was that, like, what was, what was your interaction with the Lord during that time? Well, there's no <clears throat> profound revelation, I would say. But what I do know is Linda and I did not despair. We changed our position we stopped giving stuff away from the house. <laughs> we stopped having yard sales and um, decided that, that this is where we are going to be. This is where we'll be. Because not only was I, you know, I'm coming up, my, I was coming up on my 70th birthday. I've had that now. And uh, this February would be 25 years as an elder here at Meadowview. And I'd planned on applying for Elder Emeritus and moving on. But you know, Obviously, God had different plans. So, much like different plans for my wife, my life as a young married man 40 years ago, much like a different plan when I didn't know that cancer was in my future, when I, at that moment, was planning on buying a business. I mean, I was right at the point of signing a contract to buy a business. And had I bought the business and then found out I had cancer, I would have lost the business and my home in the year that followed because I could not have pursued that business. God had these things in his hand. He knew it. And he caused the points of that contract to be beyond what I could, could agree with. So I didn't sign that contract. I didn't sign the contract for the boat. If I signed the contract, I'd have been obligated for at least the down payment of that right there when I was at the point of losing my income. So, disappointment? Yeah, you can have disappointment. But disappointment does not have to lead to despair. Because despair is questioning God. And if anything, all of those events in my life have told me that God has control. Most of you know how I came to, how my family came to be here at Meadowview. It was one of those other moments when things weren't going right. We were living in Thomasville, didn't have a church home, had gotten tired of looking for a church home. And my air conditioning heating system 
quit. And so I started looking for how I could afford, because I couldn't afford a new system. But then someone, I don't even remember who it was, told me, said that Energy United at that time had a deal that they would finance a heating system for you and just take it off of your bill each month. Well, at that time in Thomasville, in the old house I was living in and in the 20-plus-year-old heating system, I was paying about $300 a month for electricity. And uh, they, so I sent Linda to get an application for a, a, uh, to apply for that option. And Linda is not one, was not one to travel in through town traffic. So she's coming from Thomasville. She took 85 around and took the hospital exit and came in from that direction. And as she was coming towards the old Energy United headquarters downtown, she passed a sign on the side of the road that said, Meadowview Reformed Presbyterian Church. And when she got home that day with the application for me to fill out, she said, guess what I saw? I saw a sign for Reformed Presbyterian Church. Now, we had called every Presbyterian church in Lexington and found out all of them were PC USA. And we had tried that before, and we knew that wouldn't work. So Linda was going to Ohio that weekend to visit her folks. So I said, well, you go on. I said, I'll go visit on Sunday. So Sunday morning I got up and drove into Lexington, came downtown, drove through town until I saw the sign. Because you said, when you see the sign, turn right. So I saw the sign, turn right, followed into that little neighborhood back in there around the graveyard, parked in front of the church, walked in and walked in the back door, and the place was packed. And the usher seated me on the very back row. I listened to Gary Cox preach. And I sang with that congregation that sang with gusto and just enthusiasm. And uh, at the end of the service, Larry Swyscoop was sitting in front of me. He turned around and he said, uh, heard you singing. Have you ever sung with a quartet? And I went, yeah, a long time back. <laughs> And uh, he introduced me to the uh, Sounds of Joy Quartet that week. And, uh, but I remember going from the church back to Thomasville to eat at Shoney's. It's Denny's now, I think. And I had a tape I was listening to of Gary preaching. And uh, I called Linda on my cell phone and I said, Babe, I do believe I found our church home. So when you get back, we need to visit this church because I believe this is home. We came and visited. That was 1994. Still here. You got? You guys have any questions for him? We are a shy group. You know that. Yeah. Yeah, especially this crew right here. Yeah, <laughs> you know what, men, we're planners. You know, men plan. We plan for our families. We we have it all marked out. You know, my my background in engineering. I you know have it all marked out. And I always say, man plans and God laughs. And that's a paraphrase of a couple of verses. He he doesn't really laugh at us. But the the point is. It could be taken away from us in a, in a second. In John's case, in, in how many times did he? Four times, you know. But in one case, he could have ended up buying a business, and the Lord prevented that, and he had a stroke. And another time, he was about to sell his home. I'm sorry, that was when you had cancer. But then, when you went to sell your home, you had a stroke. And and I just want us to be ready. And I know there's other men in this room that had plans. They had plans for their retirement, they had plans for their family, and God had other plans. And the question is, what do we do in those moments? How do we view the Lord? Can we have joy in the midst of it? You know, and so, uh, John, thank you. Thank you for that, brother. Yeah. Can, can I get, uh, there's a few elders in here. Can elders come up and let's pray for John as we, as we pray this out? Brothers, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, yes. Praise you, Lord. I praise you for John. What a testimony, Lord. 
it's been a blessing to listen to him this morning. We cannot leave this place this morning and don't feel encouraged. Father, thank you for this man, for how you have loved him and provided for him, even in the midst of, of chaos, even in the midst of, of deep loss, of tragedy. You have been faithful to him. And he's proclaiming that to the world, to us, to encourage us. It's all about God. It's all about you, Lord. Father, thank you for Linda, his wife, Lord. What a testimony of faithfulness of a godly woman. I admire her, Lord. I really do. And I know all of us do the same. She loves her husband. And I know that John loves her too, Lord. Father, thank you for this dear couple. Thank you for their children. Thank you for, their, for his friends, for his brothers, Lord, who have come along to love on John. Help us to love him even more, Lord. Father, Lord, I also want to pray for healing, Lord, for my dear brother John. You can do that. Father, you resurrected Lazarus. You brought people from the death. I know that you can bring healing for John, Lord. Please, Father, would you heal him? In the name of Jesus, I pray that, Lord. You, can have, you have the power. Father, that's my prayer. That's our prayer, Lord, that John will be restored. But again, I echo the words of Job, Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for your church made of you. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know the worth of a seminary, go take a look at their graduates. Our graduates are all over the world. They're planting churches, they're revitalizing churches, they're translating the Bible, they're starting discipleship movements. It's heart-shaking, life-changing, and just mind-expanding of what God is doing. You know, sometimes I really do have to pinch myself that what I get to do with the ministries at BTS, the engaging with the students and the impact that God uses us to have on the lives of our students, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and it's a joy. Jesus is still building his church. So we need to equip the pastor teachers who equip the saints. We need to equip the elders who shepherd the church. And I am grateful that Birmingham Theological Seminary is available to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God in these very crucial days 